Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be learning from one of the most familiar chapters in the Bible, one that Christians throughout the ages have turned to into times of crisis or when their faith is weak or when their, their faith is under attack. It's a, a spiritual fortress that it protects, it, it, it strengthens, and it empowers. It empowers believers like you and me and those listening to, to endure, to prevail, to, to finish the race and to fight the good fight. So open your Bibles, whether it's a paper or on a phone, to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. And in our passage today, we explore three areas. Number one, the call. Number two, the response. And number three, the reward. The call, the response, and the reward. It's a call for us to take part in God's mission, his plan of salvation. So we can either respond with a no or with a faithful Yes. And how we respond determines whether we receive the reward. The call, the response, the reward. Now Hebrews, as I'm sure you know, it's a, it's a sermon letter. And those that it was addressed to were under sustained persecution from the surrounding culture. You either fit in or will cancel you out. They had been publicly insulted. Their possessions were confiscated, and some were thrown to left and to, to be left and to rot in jail. And the situation was dire, and the temptation, as I'm sure any of you can imagine, to quit was, was huge. To slide away from the faith and slide into the surrounding culture, just sort of melt in. Well, the, the temptation, it was intense. But the writer of this letter passionately states, don't. Don't be deceived. Don't quit. Don't slide back because there's nothing worth sliding back to. Look, I know this path isn't easy. It's painful. It takes endurance. Yes, there are easy paths, but they all lead downhill. They'll take you nowhere. Strive for something better. Something eternal. Something promised and guaranteed. Let us run this race together. Let us run this race that is set before us. So the writer, he's, he's, he's encouraging and now us by letting us know that we are not alone. You're not running this race alone. You're not running it under your own strength or your own capabilities. He's reminding the faithful that under duress that you you can stand firm that it is something that can be achieved you in christ can do it he provides examples abel enoch noah those who despite various trials and challenges stood firm in their faith and prevailed and this week we're going to draw our attention to abraham and to his wife sarah 
You all know Abraham. Anyone who's picked up a Bible knows and hears all about him. You know, he was a wonderful guy, made some serious errors in his life. You know, he, not the sort of guy you want to have teaching you marriage counseling. But he was, a, he was a wonderful man and so was his wife. And Abraham, he came originally from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern-day southern Iraq. And with his wife Sarah, he'd migrated to Haran, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it was there that we learn in Genesis 12 that God called Abraham and said, Lech, Lecha, go, go out. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. God called Abraham to leave his people, to leave his culture, to leave his heritage, to leave what he knew, to exchange certainty and familiarity with the unknown. Abraham didn't know where God was going to take him. He was taking a giant leap of faith. But as we see in our passage, look down verse 8, God called and Abraham obeyed. The call and the response Abraham, well, he went. He left his people and his city, even though he didn't know where he was going. I mean, that's that's quite a gamble, isn't it? Like me driving from Phoenix here without my phone telling me which directions to go. That was a bit of a gamble. (laughs) Took me a few, took me a little while to get here, but to leave your town where you've lived and all that you have and go somewhere just because God tells you to, That's a huge gamble. It's a risk. To pack up your life, to think about it, shut down your business, move out to the unknown. Would it be safe? Is he going to be putting his family at risk? And yet that is just what Abraham did. Well, why? Because he believed in the promises of the one who sent him. He trusted in God. And so, verse 9, he went. He stepped out in faith to a country that was not his own. It was away from his own people, traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles by foot, by donkey, by cart, away from his beloved, rich, fertile homeland to a dusty land known for violent weather and high temperatures. (laughs) A bit like England and feet. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go. He left the safety, the security, and creature comforts in order to become a stranger in a foreign country, living a nomadic life, not not housed in buildings, but in tents. But I mean, you know, come on, but back then, we're talking like thousands of years ago. I mean, Abraham was a simple guy, you know, and didn't they all live in tents back then? No. Tents were for the poor people. Wealthy people lived in houses. And indeed, Abraham was not a simple man raised in a backwater. He came from the city of Ur. Archaeologists have found that at the time of Abraham, Ur was a highly cultured, sophisticated city. It was part of Mesopotamia, which is the foundation, the cradle of Western civilization. 
that has the earliest known writing systems. Colossal buildings, the ziggurat. You can go and see it today. It's still there thousands of years later, this monumental building. People built fine, two-story, luxurious, furnished homes. No living in a tent was, was, was not for the rich, but for the poor. And yet Abraham, Genesis 13, was not poor. So, so what does all this mean? I mean, Abraham, what, what's with the tent? Well, it was a sign of faith, waiting for the promises of God to come into effect, waiting for the land that was promised to him but was not yet his. And so Abraham was waiting for God's perfect timing. And so did Isaac and his grandson, Jacob. And as we see in verse 10, he was waiting looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. Abraham was waiting for the promises of God. The tent, it, well, it was, it was a sign of temporaneous, a temporaneous living, living in a temporary accommodation, waiting for a city, a city whose foundations would be built by God. See, Abraham's future is what motivated his present life. Abraham was looking to where he was going, and that's how he lived his life. The tent reflected his heart. It's a, it's a glimpse into his faith, into his vision and humility. He wasn't settled in this world. He was waiting for the next. He had an eternal rather than a temporary perspective. And so must we. So I asked myself and I asked you guys here and you watching do we have a nomadic mindset, willing to go out at God's command? Or is our relationship, is my relationship with God, well, is, it, you know, is it more of a flirt than a commitment? More of a wink of the eye rather than a, a firm embrace? If so, then my faith is futile. Our foundations are, are too loosely based on God, too firmly based in this world, which is fading away. For if we don't walk with God in this life, we won't live with him in the next. Faith, well, it waits. Faith, it trusts. And faith obeys. Now, our uh, passage here for us has three examples of faith, of trusting in and waiting for God's promise. Firstly, he left the security of his beloved homeland. Secondly, he lived as a stranger, as, a, as an outsider, one on the, 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 the side of society, a, a statusless alien waiting for the promised land to become his. And thirdly, he waited for God to make him into a great nation. That was part of the promise that Abraham's seed would become a great nation. Verse 12. Descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And yet, where were they? Where was this multitude of offspring? As we read in Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless, and I will multiply you greatly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Yet where were they? I mean, where was this multitude? 
God had made promises to Abraham when he and his wife were already old and way past childbearing age. Genesis 17 records that Abraham fell on his face often said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I mean, it's fair talk. You know, I mean, I'm coming up to 50 and I'm just starting to use these things, you know. I mean, it's sort of like I noticed uh, on my notes, you know, just sort of like, well, I could fake it without the glasses and, you know, sort of see. But, uh, you know, the thought of running these days for me is just out of the question. You know, so, I mean, bearing a child at <laughs> coming up to 100 years old, good luck. I mean, <laughs> you know, Lord, you know, with all respect, you know, that boat, it sailed. It's biologically impossible. How are you going to bring life out of a body that is as good as dead? Verse 12. Yet after the initial shock, Abraham believed. He knew that what was impossible for a man or a woman was not impossible for God. The one, verse 3, who created the universe and all things from nothing could surely bring life to one child. And I have to say for a minute going off script, which is always dangerous. But, you know, we, we need to think about that when we face hardships in this life. You know, how am I going to get out of this? Lord, you've led me down this path and look where it's got me. How am I going to get out of this situation? What am I going to have to do? Well, perhaps, Julian, get on your knees and pray to the guy who created the universe, who holds this whole thing together. Perhaps, just perhaps, He knows what he's doing and is better capable of dealing with it than me and perhaps with you. Remember, God hasn't forgotten you, even in your dark night of the soul. And so Abraham, he waited and he waited and he waited. Each year, his and Sarah's body are getting older and older. The natural chances of giving birth were fading year on year. In fact, it was 25 years. A quarter of a century, they had to wait until Sarah gave birth to a child, Isaac, the heir of God's promises. You know, again, if if it were me, I'd be saying, you know, look, God, with with complete respect, uh, but did I understand you correctly? Have I missed your message? I mean, have I have I done something wrong? Did you find out what I did when I was eight years old or what I was thinking last night? Did you, did you discover, Lord, that I'm really not the best guy to be able to do this? Have you found someone better? You know, have, have you had a change of mind? Have you rescinded your promise, Father? How long must I wait for your promise to come true? And yet Abraham waited patiently and obediently. And through faith, he received the promise that was promised to him. Yet God waited to show the miraculous, to show Abraham, to show Sarah, to show me, to show you that for him, nothing is impossible. And that when the timing, his timing is right, the promise will be fulfilled he tested abraham's faith and abraham held true but how about me how about you 
Have you ever wondered if God has forgotten about you? Have you ever thought that you have just fallen out of his favor? I know Jesus died for my sins and I'm cleansed, but, 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 what well, maybe for Christ? But, you know, I think God's just sort of fallen out with me. I mean, no, he's tried and he's tried and he's tried and, you know, I'm just, I'm just not making the grade. Have I fallen out of God's favor? Is he simply just not listening to me? I mean, sometimes do we grow weary from waiting? Well, stand firm. God came through for Abraham, and he will come through for you. It will be on his timing and on his terms, but his promises are the only certain thing in this life. The only sure foundation. Everything else in this life, well, it has a shelf life. It fades away. I mean, our achievements, our our prestige, our treasure, our health, our children, our life is temporary. Our memory and our accolades will soon be forgotten in the, the sands, in the, in the dust of time. I mean, you can, you can think about it. I mean, I, I know when I was visiting Oxford University in England, just being a tourist, going around, and uh, I visited the dining hall of Christ Church College. I don't know if any of you have been there, but it, it's magnificent. It's an edifice to the greats of human achievement. The good and the great, they all have their portraits hanging around this dining hall so that lowly people like me can look up and gaze at how wonderful they are. I mean, you might know this room better, actually, from being Hogwarts Dining Hall in Harry Potter. Ah, you do recognize it. So, yes, (laughs) the Hogwarts Dining Hall, that's what it was based upon. Well, it's a wonderful place. It's a medieval hall, and it's lined with portraits, as I say, of the good and the great spanning back centuries. William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania. King Henry VIII. William Gladstone, he was a, a very famous, a great British prime minister. And the aristocratic Charles Corn Wallace. Now, for any of you know a little bit about American history, he's the guy who lost the war to you guys. You know, some good, some bad. But anyway, uh, I noticed, by the way, that I always get chosen to preach really close to July the 4th. I don't know if that's just... God humbling me or Bryce's sense of humor. I, I don't know. Anyway, I'll, I'll come back to that later, actually. I'll weave that in. But anyway, I noticed that the walls on this place were absolutely packed with portraits, absolutely chock-a-bot plaque with these great people. Although there was a little spare room, just enough space for a, a little portrait of me. I mean, you'd have to move the wooden bust of Queen Victoria II out of the way to make space for me, but, but there would be right in the center a beautiful portrait of me. And again, normal, lowly people can travel the world and they can, can, can someone see the portrait of me for centuries and, and marvel? But now let's be delusional just for a little bit longer. Even if people did come from around the world to see my portrait, it would have to be heavily photoshopped. Well, then, then people aren't going to come. I, I wouldn't go and see myself. My mother wouldn't go and see a portrait of me. You know, I mean, what, what sort of serious vaingloriness, self-conceit mindset is this? And what would I gain even if one person did come to look? I'd be dead. 
I'd be pushing up daisies and at some point in time my, my painting would fade. I'd, I'd be forgotten and they'd replace this painting with someone who truly deserved to be there. You see, your point is this, trying to find meaning and worth in serving ourselves, serving my ego, will only lead to spiritual immaturity, frustration, and death. Now, it wasn't a king or a cardinal or a prime minister, but quite aptly a college cleaner who told me where to look for true glory, for a glory that lasts, a glory found in meekness, a glory found in servitude and humility, an everlasting glory that comes through obedience to Jesus Christ, obedience to God's call. Because we all have a choice. We can use this life to seek self-glory through power, money, prestige, the, the praise of man, or do something lasting and worthwhile and obey God by using our lives to love and serve others, to wait on him in obedience through faith so that when he calls, we go. It's not about a painting on the wall. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. This will fade. That will last for an eternity. So what would be the heights of today's pinnacle of society? Back then, it's all the, the names that I mentioned. Uh, I went to see, I was in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, excuse me, recently, and you know, looking around, obviously William Penn was a big shot there, and uh, you know, he's a wonderful guy, he, he truly was. But what would be today? What, what, are, what are the accolades? You know, what are we looking at at the, the peak of our society in modern today? Is it a, a politician, or is it an academic? Or probably it's more of a celebrity, like a, like a rock star or something. That is the peak of our, of our society. Yet as the one world-renowned, multi-million-selling rock star, one who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whose, whose achievements have earned him a place in the Guinness Book of Records, who's inspired many other great rock musicians after him, what he said was this, Even when I'd reached the point where I had every car I could drive, all the money I could spend, all the women I desired, I remained unsatisfied. Life was just an empty vessel waiting to be filled. What would satisfy me? Another car? Another house? Another hit record? You know, perhaps more applause, more awards. Yet after all the drinking was over, I was still looking for something to fill the empty bottle of my soul. All the stuff, the fame and the money still hadn't quenched my inner thirst for contentment. The world was simply not enough. There has to be something else, something that will last. Well, this rock star eventually became a Christian. And like Joseph in the scriptures, he was looking for something even better. He was looking for something that was eternal, something which he could truly invest his life in and have God fulfill him rather than the things of this world. But I, I admit to myself, you know, it's so easy to be tempted, to be, to be caught up in this contemporary world that we're in. You know, we're in the greatest, most wealthy country in the world. And yet, the lifespan of the things in this world is so short. I mean, think about what is life without God all about? 
What is life all about? You work hard at school, as you should. You do well at work. You get promoted. You find a spouse. You have kids. You hope they marry up. <laughs> you save money so that when you retire, you can grab a little bit of fun along the way before we just shift off this mortal coil. I mean, isn't that life? Isn't that what it's all about here on this earth? Without God? Eat, drink, be merry, make the most of it. Try not to think too much. Because with all these things, and there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, studying, getting jobs, of course. But are we really on this earth working to work so hard so that we can survive just for a short period of time? only to die? Is there something more permanent, unlike our bodies, unlike our minds, unlike those of our children and grandchildren who are going the same way that we are, that won't fade away with the passing of time? Something imperishable that, that at the end of all the days doesn't merely turn just to dust. So let us ask ourselves, let us review our lives. Do I? Do you? Do, do we seek a portrait among the worldly hall of fame, or one among the hall of faith. A place among the men and women who triumphed through faith. People who believed God and tirelessly pursued his promises, like Enoch, as I said, like Noah, and Abel, who, verse 4, even though they are dead, still speak. Their actions, their examples, will speak for thousands of years even though they're dead. We can see the world and have our day in the sun or live a life of faith and service and an eternity with the sun, the son of God. A life of purpose, reason and lasting effect. Well, as I mentioned earlier on, before I went off script, <laughs> the book of Hebrews is a sermon, a sermon letter written to the Christians, urging them to persevere through persecution. Not to, not to shrink away, but rather to, a call to stand firm. To remember that on this earth, verse 13, we are foreigners, we're strangers, we're different. We don't follow or fit in with the culture around us. We march to the beat of a different drum. We believe that the word governs the world and not that the world governs the word. So, not by choice, but we're countercultural. But this path is not easy. The road ahead may not be a walk in the park, for the way of the Lord is different from the way of the world. And you will find that you become a threat to the world, a threat that they will try and make you conform. We see it in our passage in the first century. We saw it in the English dissenters in the 17th century where those who refused to follow the state-sanctioned version of Christianity, they were beaten, they were stoned, they were mauled. And on occasion, the mob was paid for by Anglican clergy, someone like me. And this is just in quaint old Merry England. You know, we see it in, in the present-day world. In certain places in this world where Christian families are separated and forced into re-education camps. State-enforced education telling you what you must think and what you must believe. Yet why 
in these places of intense persecution is Christianity booming. It is because they stand firm. They, verse 14, are looking for a better country of their own, a heavenly one whose builder and architect are God. We saw it with our Jewish forefathers. You know, the, the, the reason that the Jews had so many religious freedoms under the oppressive Roman army, Roman Empire, was because the Romans, they would go to the Jews and they would state that, you know, they were going to curtail, curtail certain elements of your beliefs and certain elements of your practices. And the Jews would say, uh, yeah, we're not going to do that, you're just going to have to kill us. They would say, all right, all right, well, calm down, calm down. The Jews would, 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 would be allowed at, at, to practice their religious beliefs. There were times, such as with the Maccabees, there were revolts, but by and large, they stood firm. And we saw it in the 17th and 18th English dissenters, where non-state sanctioned preachers were thrown into jail. If the government says, you're not allowed to preach, we don't like your message, into jail you go. You're John Bunyan, where he was sent to prison without a hearing, without a witness, and he was judged. He was sentenced to three months in prison. You know, three months, I mean, no one wants to go to prison, you know, but three months, it doesn't seem, seem too bad. It seems fairly, fairly okay. But in these prisons, there was no light. There was no sanitation. And they were filled with the disease of typhus. Going to jail was a death sentence. Yet after three months, he was offered his freedom on the promise that he would not preach again. Well, he refused. He made his point, and he told them that if I leave, I preach. So months turned into years. And in all, he spent 12 years in prison, even though the prison door remained unlocked. It was there that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress and he inspired generations like you and me and around the world to stand firm in our faith, not to bend the knee to something which is against Jesus Christ. Now, that was back then and the population now has, has, has exploded. Over the last uh, 100 years, the world population has simply ballooned. It's exploded and uh, one Pew report states that in 1910, there were 600 million recorded Christians. And in 2010, so 100 years later, there were 2.2 billion Christians. With 2.7 million converting other people from other religions converting to Christianity annually. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims converting to Christianity every year. And when they do, they face social rejection. They face imprisonment, sometimes murder for converting to the faith. But they held out. And verse 16, again, they're longing, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And that is our third point, the reward, the call, the response, and now the reward, the promise of Christ. It is people such as these around the world, who are suffering for their faith. Verse 16, that God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In fact, it tends to only be in places, in countries where it is easy to be a Christian, 
that we see the Christian population in decline. It is not persecution that threatens the church, but comfort. During the reign of the Soviet Union, Soviet authorities, they brutally persecuted and suppressed Christianity and other faiths. The plan was to eliminate, to eradicate religious beliefs. Church buildings were destroyed. Beautiful cathedrals were destroyed, brought down. Christians were ridiculed, they were harassed, they were incarcerated. Policy constantly advocated advocated the control, the suppression, and ultimately the elimination of religious beliefs. Get that out of here. At least 106,000 religious leaders were executed, either sent to prison, labor camps, or if you've got a faith, well, then you go to a mental institution. The schools and the media were flooded with anti-religious teaching. If you taught your children Christianity, you can lose your parental rights. The Soviets, not modern-day Russia, but the Soviets sought to crush, sought to destroy Christianity. Yet when the Union was crushed, when it collapsed, when it imploded, the Soviet authorities were in horror to find that despite the threats, despite the harassment, despite the deaths, there were 60 million faithful Christians still living out their faith. And in a country now, as we stand here, I won't say its name, a Middle Eastern country where Christianity is banned, where missionaries are kicked out, evangelism is outlawed. If you, if you teach scripture to someone, you can get your hands cut off. Bibles burned, pastors killed, where, as I say, sharing your faith can, can bring a death sentence. There's fierce persecution, and when it happened, it was threatening to wipe out the small church movement that existed in this country. Yet the exact opposite happened. Why? Because the Christians in this country, even under fierce persecution, boldly, lovingly, and faithfully lived out their faith and told others about Jesus Christ, even though it carried the death sentence makes my reasons for not sharing about Christ at a barbecue seem extremely trivial and pathetic. Yet because they did this, as a result, there are now more Christians in this country, more Christian people have come to faith in the last 20 years than they did in the past 13 centuries combined. Despite trials, despite persecutions, and perhaps because of the suffering, of Jesus Christ shines and it has grown. Again, it is not persecution that threatens the church, but comfort. Those who profess yet lack commitment, who through fear refuse to live out and share their faith. Yet as we have read, whilst God is not ashamed to call those who live out their faith, who share their faith, he is ashamed of those who won't. Luke 9. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. They don't belong to him. They belong to this world. Like the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3. The church in Laodicea was nothing more than lukewarm. I mean, they were doing well. They they were materially rich, but they failed to realize that they were spiritually poor. And God states to them, I know your deeds, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot, neither cold, I'm going to spit you out. 
Or the church in Sardis, where God states, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. But what of me? It's okay to stand up here and parrot on at you guys for a while, but, but what of me? And what of you? What of the way of grace church? What would God say to us? Would he find us a, a Sardinian church, asleep whilst on duty, or a Laodicean church, you know, materially rich but spiritually poor? Or would we be like the church in Philadelphia that has stayed holy and true and faithful to his word? Because Christians from around the world, we come in varying backgrounds and varying races. The, the color of our skin, our physicalities are all different. Us in this sanctuary, just having a quick look, we're fairly the same, but there, there are different colors, there are, there are different backgrounds, and yet we have different tastes, we have different opinions, and yet we're all brothers and sisters. And like our heroes listed in the Hall of Faith, uh, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Abraham, we're all different, but we have one unifying characteristic, and that is our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. All the people that we have mentioned did what God said. And they made a radical, a word that I mean, radical impact on their day. But now the baton, the, the torch has been passed to me and it's been passed to you. The question is, will you embrace it? Will you take hold of it? Or will I, let's just point at me, will I let it slip? Will I hope that, that someone else will run it for me? You know, perhaps the next generation. Perhaps my grandchildren will step up to the plate and live it out. But it is only when an individual, a family, or a church respond to God's call that you will see the great impact happen in the community around them. God has called, but will I respond? Or will I sort of sink back behind the curtain into the shadows, seek security and comfort, poke my head out occasionally just to say hello, but, but do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Well, Julian, you can, do. But don't call yourself a Christian and don't deceive yourself that you will be a part of God's promise. Find your place in his heavenly city, verse 16. Don't be surprised at death when, 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 when you meet him there. He will say, away from me. I never knew you, Matthew 7. Will the word of God be found in us when he returns? Our heroes, verse 15, they had the opportunity to turn back. They could have taken the emergency exit and, and jumped out. They had the opportunity to, to return, to return to the world and to give up, and yet they held strong. Moses, for instance, he was raised as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, the highest standing in the world's superpower. Security, prestige, wealth. Yet, verse 24, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The call, the response, 
and the reward. To become a loved child of God. That's the reward. To have a purpose in this life and entrance into the heavenly city in the next. Our heroes were called and they faithfully responded. And so now we are being called. And we must do whatever we are called to do and go wherever we are called to go. Finally, as we said, you know, July the 4th is creeping up. <laughs> you know, it's a big day for you American guys. Uh, you know, a day for, uh, I don't know, what do you, national gloating against the English. You know. <laughs> well, my family and I, as I said, we, we recently went to Williamsburg, Jamestown, Williamsburg in, in Virginia. If you haven't been, go. And we went to Mount Vernon, you know, and the exhibitions there, which uh, is uh, near D.C., and the exhibitions there, you know, you have uh, George uh, Washington and, and his forces, you know, there, and then you have the English, you know, sort of portrayed in, in a certain way. Well, my daughters, who are American, uh, they take great joy in sort of looking at me and saying, beat you. <laughs> you know, and adults, you know, you, you do the same, but in a more veiled way, in a more pol- polite manner, you know, and tell me that the U.S. was freed from the tyranny of the British forefathers. Well, I'm not arguing, actually. It's true. But who's going to set our children free? Who's going to give freedom to our children? I mean, even pre-COVID, I mean, now in regards to statistics and figures, COVID's thrown everything off the charts. But even before COVID hit, depression was the second most common health issue in the world. It is reported that 60 million Americans feel desperately alone. 60,000 Americans a year die from opioids. Alcohol and drug abuse are on the rise, and a UCLA reported that college students, study reported that college students are now more depressed and hopeless than ever. Perhaps the intended comical car bumper sticker that I've seen around occasionally. There's this bumper sticker and it says, don't follow me, I'm lost. Well, perhaps it's saying more than it knows. A description of an era that is increasingly lost and isolated. One that's searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching for unconditional love. Perhaps, friends, the revolution isn't over. And yet until we bow our knee to the king, not King George, but the king in heaven, until we bow our knee to him, we're going to be unable to share true life, liberty, (laughs) and the happiness that comes from it. Now there are two doors in this place that you could exit from. Uh, thank you for uh, not exiting halfway through the sermon. That's, that's talking about steadfast. I appreciate it. But there's, there's two doors you can take. There's two paths that you can take in this life. One is to shrink back, to blend in, to serve yourselves, which makes you a citizen of the world. And the other is to live and share out the word of God, to sacrificially live out your faith and love And serve others, which makes you a citizen of heaven. So choose this day who you are going to serve. One is a path of liberty, and the other is a path 
of slow death. Lech, lecha, go, go out. Let us pray.